Hi, and welcome to Talking with Painters. My name's Maria Stolger, and this is the 50th episode of the podcast where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. So if this is the first time you're tuning in or the 50th, thanks for listening. And thank you to all the artists for opening up about their lives and how they made it to where they are. Especially Archibald winner Francis Jarko, who was willing to be the first guest not knowing what was going to end up online. When I first started this podcast, I didn't imagine that I'd end up meeting so many of my art heroes, let alone see inside their studios and talk to them about their whole lives. So it's been an absolutely amazing experience. Thank you also to those of you who've been on social media with comments and those of you who've put reviews on iTunes and who've watched all those videos on YouTube and Facebook. I appreciate every single one of those comments and without you listeners, there is no point to this podcast. Today, I have another fascinating guest for you to get to know, Andrew Lloyd Greensmith. If you're an Archibald tragic like me, you will have probably noticed his work hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales last year, that arresting portrait of 102-year-old Eileen Kramer, which was his first ever Archibald entry, and he's been selected this year again with his portrait of lecturer and feminist Susan Carland. What you might not know about Andrew is that he's also a renowned plastic and reconstructive surgeon and was the leader of one of the teams which worked together to separate Bangladeshi conjoined twins Krishna and Trishna who were joined at the head. That complex 32-hour operation in 2009 was a success and made world headlines. Andrew still works as a surgeon but he's increasingly turning his attention to painting and now spends two days a week in his studio. We recorded this interview in Andrew's home in Melbourne with a painting of his daughter uh, in progress on the easel a few feet away. We talked about his life, doubts and fears as an artist, but also a lot about the painting process, colour, glazing, the pitfalls of using photographs, how the knowledge of anatomy helps in painting a realist portrait and lots more. It was an incredibly informative and interesting conversation. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Andrew was born in Auckland, New Zealand, and we pick up our conversation uh, when he talks about his early teenage years. Did you draw much? I did draw. Uh, I can't remember back then what I was drawing, uh, but I I remember winning the school art prize in grade seven, which was interesting because the prize was a book voucher. And back then we had bookshops everywhere, unlike now. So I went down to the local bookstore to purchase my book. And the book that I purchased was a a book on uh, realism painting. And that was in grade seven uh, by uh, Raymond Ching. Raymond Ching is a New Zealand artist who is famous for painting particularly birds, um, often in quite abstract um, realism now, but intense realism. I mean, Mm. photorealism. that was interesting for for you know for someone in, in what was year seven I would have been what age ten or something like that yeah to obviously have that bent and and, and interest in in painting and um, so it can't, yeah so it's obviously something that came straight like yeah. totally from you yeah. an intrinsic sort of yeah. thing yeah and what so well obviously you went on to to study medicine after yeah. school so when you got into later high school. Um, 
was it clear that that was the avenue you were going to take or did you actually consider something more artistic? Medicine wasn't the clear one. It, uh, it actually, through connection with uh, uh, friends of the family, I picked up books in their home on plastic surgery. And those books were on correction of cleft lip and palate deformities and they had pre and post-operative photographs and I was taken by the, the change in form and the repair and... and, and I perhaps didn't appreciate what was required to become a plastic surgeon, which was, of course, to become a doctor first. Um, <laughs> so I had to go through the normal route. But um, even before then, through to high school, I, I had quite a good art teacher. But I think, like, e even then, uh, unless you're a, seen as a bit unusual or you are unusual, um, you, d you get veered away from the arts. It doesn't seem to have a, an end point to it that will gain you an income. Mm. So art's gone out much, you know, in terms of the, the school curriculum is important. Mm, um, mm. And so I guess that just, I was succumbed to the same route. I kept that sort of feeling inside me and I really only re-explored it when I did some postgraduate training in Paris um, and I just sought out a couple of night classes in art and there would have been five or six, maybe seven classes in six months that I did. Um, uh, so when was that? This was in 2003. Can we just go back a step? Because um, I just wanted to briefly have a look at your, your medical career because it's been pretty stellar. Yeah. Um, you were Chief of Department of Craniofacial Surgery at Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Yeah. But, uh, of course, you, you came to prominence in 2009 with the, the well-reported surgery separating the conjoined twins, Krishna and Trishna, yes. the Bangladeshi yeah. Twins. What I, I was very, what I'm interested in that when I read about that, I I remember it when it was yeah. happening because it was very well. Uh, the lead up to it was covered quite a lot in the media. What effect did that media attention have on on the teams? Um, well, we actually uh, intentionally blocked any media until about a week before separation, and we'd been working on the intervening operations for about two years. But we, the company that was filming agreed to keep it from the general popular media because we didn't want the pressure on the team. It was such an uncertain and unlikely chance of being successful mm. and we decided to take it on that we felt the pressure would be too difficult. So we agreed to a documentary being filmed but nothing to be released until the press conference a week before. And then it went crazy. So, um, oh, I see. Yeah. So, we, so we wanted that buffer from the popular media, mm. from expectations, mm. um, to let us to focus on the innovations that we were trying to sort of, you know, use to make the chance of success much higher. Mm. Um, the odds were very poor, um, and so, yeah, that was important. So you had quite a few... Um uh, surgeries before the actual Yeah, separation. we had about eight or nine smaller procedures over mm. two years. We were gradually making them become more independent between the two brains by pruning, if you like, the blood vessels to try and make them more independent of each other mm. because traditional attempts had been sort of one fell swoop and that had been unsuccessful or devastating for at least one of the twins or both. And so we weren't prepared to do it that way and we had thought of other ways to do it where we thought we could be successful, even with a small chance of doing it. Mm. Uh, and that seemed to be the way to do it. But, mm. um, yeah. And how did it feel after? after oh, it was, it was, I couldn't sleep for about two weeks afterwards with the adrenaline that would, kept us going, operating for two, three days on end with okay. no sleep. So, oh, yeah, really? Didn't need sleep, did not need sleep. Sleep was not required. Really? Yeah. Maybe a power nap for about 10 minutes at one point, but 
you just sort of, there's so much happening yeah. and you, you're so engaged. Yeah. Yeah. You had little breaks from the operating theatre, but you were still awake. You were then coming back in and it was time for the neurosurgeons and then they would come out. It was like tag teaming and then your turn again and they would come out again. Um, and um, mm. so, yeah, we were keeping an eye on what they were doing so it wouldn't affect our part of the operation and vice versa. So, um, yeah. So do you, at the moment, are you, are you uh, operating regularly, like every week? Is that Yeah, yeah, I've got a full, I mean, I have a full private practice. So mm. I left the Children's Hospital three years ago um, and part of the reason I left was that actually subconsciously I'd been wanting time to paint more. Yeah. And I only, only when I came to the realisation that the frustrations of the public university system sometimes were getting to me more than they would otherwise because I actually was not having the time to paint or draw. And so it was obvious after I left that actually all of a sudden uh, decided to de dedicate these two days a week to trying to paint or draw. Uh, oh, so I, you have more control over your time? More control, oh, complete okay. control, and, and, and just that peace of mind as well, that calmness of mind that you need. You know, you, if you know yourself painting, if things are not right and uh, completely or something's not right that day, you don't sit down at the easel and paint and draw. Mm, mm. Even though painting's often thought about as a bit of escape, you know, it's like running away without leaving home. Um, yes. You can't actually get started unless no. things are right. That's interesting, yeah. isn't it? That's a question I often ask yeah. artists is um, what conditions they need yeah. in the studio yeah. to be able to get into that space. And you're right, if yeah. you've got concerns, and the sort of concerns you would have are, sort of affect people's lives. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, and I was also concerned with the administ increasingly administrative side of medicine intervening with what we were doing as doctors, and that was that's the way the world's going, especially in the public system. So better to be out and not be, you know, not get that negative vibe anymore. And I got a lot out of the, the you know, my career there. Um, but um, I continue with my private practice probably three to four days a week, and then get to paint one to two days a week, and then. I could paint every evening when I'm home. I don't for family reasons as well, but quite often I'm painting into the evening quite late mm. uh, on other days as well if I'm working on a painting. So you were saying that it was in, was in Paris you were saying that you reignited the love of art and yeah. drawing. And so was it drawing, life drawing more or less? That you um, it was, uh, we didn't use life drawing. Uh, she gave me uh, still life drawing to do and we painted uh, seashells actually, um, complex pattern seashells. Uh, I was interested in still life a little bit more at that stage. Um, and I didn't do many classes, I didn't have time, but it was just three or four classes. We worked on a very small oil um, of seashells, um, and that's what rekindled that sort of flame. And then it just stuck with me in the years coming back from postgraduate work, getting stable, staying in Melbourne, establishing my career. All along in the background, there was that undercurrent of wanting to get an, out there and paint and draw. So, how did you? learn, keep learning after that? I just read extensively, um, read so extensively. essentially self-taught, really. Self-taught, yeah, read. And, and there are some, a lot of resources out there, but there's a lot of very poor, in my opinion, a lot of poor resources, but there's some absolute gems if you can find them. Um, people like David Kassan, um, who have opened up, you know, with full-length DVDs of painting sessions and... Yeah, he's amazing. You know, I think it, there's so many of these... Um, uh, fast track videos on YouTube now where they do a painting that takes a week and about 10 minutes but you can't <laughs> learn from that you, know, you learn nothing from well, that you sometimes you 
you learn little things. A little bit, yeah. Like you sort of think, oh, what colour is that? Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I totally yeah. agree with you. You've got, and if you're going to waste, if you're going to spend time on it, you want to get the best stuff because yeah, you've got right. limited time yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. learn. Yeah. So when did you start getting interested in portraiture? Uh, it's, it's about, I think it was about sort of finding what do you actually paint, you know, how do you become creative um, without just copying, you know, you start out by trying to copy some artists that you like, um, like what people do with the old masters, you see people, you know, often are told to paint an old master when they're doing oil painting classes, mm. and that's a traditional part of painting, but when you get to the point where you've got a little bit of ability and you're starting to get happier with it, what do you then paint, you know, and so, and why, why paint that, what's it saying, you know, do you just, you paint a cup standing on a, on a, on a desk and try and get it to look like a cup standing on a desk, but is it really saying anything? Mm. I don't know if it has to say anything, or how do you make your mark, you know, mm. without becoming mm. someone like else, that's, and I don't think you necessarily always find that in the whole time that you, your whole career of painting, but it's what you're searching for, so, I felt that were well, my easiest, I don't have a particularly abstract mind as yet, so I was unlikely to be painting abstract, um, mm -hmm. even though I admire some abstract work. I am interested in people with my work. I do mostly facially related reconstruction and aesthetic facial work. Mm. Um, some body work as well. Um, and I'm really interested in, I love my work as a plastic surgeon. I look forward to coming to work every day, um, go away on a holiday for two weeks. I'm, I'm keen to get back to it. So I'm lucky to I'm feel privileged to have a job that I really, really love. Even more privileged that I've got a bit of time now and control to actually do something else as well. Mm. But I, I meet probably 100 people a week, um, new people, and, and ask about their lives who've come to me for various reasons, for aesthetic enhancement, for reconstruction. And you actually do get to know them really well over quite a period of time. So you get people from all walks of life and you get really interested in faces. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could imagine. So, well, you would be examining faces all the day time. in, day, day out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, does it become an occupational hazard that you, <laughs> when you look at someone's face, you're looking at the angles of the It's you more know, that you, features? you see many, many faces that you just love to paint uh, uh, in their yeah. current form. You should tell them that. Yeah. And then yeah. they'd say, oh, maybe I won't get it done after all. I don't think they would. <laughs> I don't think they well, would. Well, I suppose but if they're going to come and see you, they've thought about it for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I just have to make sure that or we have to make sure as patient and doctor that what we're changing it to is also uh, enhancing rather than detracting from character. Uh, that's well, important. How do, you, so. how do you determine that? Well, it's just a judgment and experience, really. Um, we have, a, uh, and also the ability to use a 3D camera. So we use a 3D simulation camera. So it takes an exact copy of their face as it is, and I change it in front of them. And I do it based on what their anatomy and what the limitations are. So they leave my office with an image they're happy with, and their family can be happy with, or their partner can be happy with, and that I know that's realistic from a, a technical point of view as well. Can we get on to... The big news, which has been the last two years, you've been finalist in the Archibald Prize yeah, yeah. with two magnificent paintings. Oh, thank you. Um, I'd like to first talk about your painting from last year, which was called The Inner Stillness of Eileen Kramer. Mm. And can I say that whenever I spoke to somebody about the Archibald last year, it, the majority of people mentioned that painting. Oh, and yeah. I know why. It was a, it was a beautiful... It's a... It's a it's, well, smallish, yeah. uh, quiet... Uh, but very powerful mm. painting. Can you tell me a little bit about about Eileen and how 
Yeah, I didn't know Eileen uh, at all. Um, I, in one of the hospital uh, uh, operating theatre tea rooms, I saw a uh, uh, financial review paper there in between operating cases and I noticed there was an article on uh, the awards for the Westpac Women of Influence and Eileen Kramer was one of them and I read it and I thought, well, you know, here's a, here's a ballerina, dancer, choreographer. My daughter's an aspiring ballerina at 17 and I was looking at that stage where I was ready to move away from, not away from, but also paint other things other than family, other people. Mm-hmm. And I was getting happier with my ability to do to paint. And I thought, well, could I find someone, you know, to put into the Archibald? I don't know anyone particularly famous oh. that I could approach. But the criteria seemed to match that someone who had contributed to the arts and culture. Yeah. And she was 102 and still working. Yeah. And she had an amazing face. Now, I think one of the most striking things about that portrait uh, is the pose. Yeah. Um, and I saw a video uh, which was on a news segment which, where, where Eileen was saying, I wasn't, I wasn't really posing, I was just being myself. Yeah, she was, yeah. Can you tell me about that session where you were looking for the pose? And yeah, um, I didn't really know uh, how to get her to approach her to sort of pose particularly, but she just started posing. So I set up the background for the um, sketches and the photographs and um, she just started moving. Oh, so without you directing yeah, anything, yeah, so she, yeah. well, like as a ballet dancer, was yes, that what yeah. she was well, doing? her dance style, which is sort of avant-garde modern dance, really, mm. with um, some ballet elements, but mostly using her hands, which she does a lot with her dance. Mm. So for me, it was interesting also to paint the hands and have yeah. those expressed as well. So that was really important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just, I should just actually describe it for people who can't see it if they're driving or something. Um, it's a it's a portrait where the uh, the the figure is in the sort of it's sort of in the lower left quadrant yeah. of the of the uh, canvas, and she's uh, has her ha- head almost in her hands with her eyes closed. Yeah. So at what point was she did she adopt that pose? Um, okay, I don't um, remember the actual moment because it's a continuous movement as well. So, but because I'm taking a lot of photographs, I was able to pick, you know, which one was the exact. You know, I knew the sort of that was ex- when I saw that that was, you know, amongst perhaps 300 photographs that you yeah, take. Yeah. You know, what's going to work as a portrait? You know, you've got some diagonals going, and you've got that sense of stillness, but a bit of movement. You know, yeah. um, uh, and I. I think it was important, the reason why I put her um, offset from the centre of the canvas was to give her just a little bit of that sense of space as well that a dancer would have. Mm. The other thing about that portrait that I found really interesting was the range of colours that you had in the flesh tones. Mm. And I was really interested in um, your palette. Yeah. How do you sort of navigate your palette? Do you have the same colours on your palette every time? Yeah, pretty pretty similar. I mean, I don't. I try to minimise the number. I'm probably up to about um, to look at my palette again. But there's probably about maybe ten to twelve, and um, you know, lots of variation of from a mid-tone mix of one colour, a warm and a cold variant of that. So I like to layer the warms and colds or juxtapose them if we can, if, if possible, which is a lot of someone like David Kassan speaks about cross-hatching the, the lines of his painting and having the, 
transparency developed from the warms and colds next to each other or on top of each other. And oh, um, so on top, of, so one will come through the other. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's oh. that's important. Um, certainly next to each other, that works really mm. well. And well, helps. that well that tends to suggest a turn in the form. A turn in the form, doesn't yeah, it? That's right. Yeah, that's so really important. Would you? So when you mix your flesh tones, yeah, you will have like your basic flesh tone, and then will you? A, a separate cool and a separate warm. Of that various of, variation of, of that, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And do you spend a lot of time mixing that in the morning before you start? I don't mix them all up. I start with the basic and then my palette gets messier and messier during the day. So Right. Um, and when it gets too messy or a lot of the paint on the glass palette, palette's too, too sticky or, or dry, which is probably after a couple of weeks, I keep it in the freezer each night. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Then it's probably time to take them all off and start again. Um, but I, I use a, the flesh tone base is a cool green mixed with a terra verde green mixed with a, a warm oxide reddish brown colour which is um, called capuchin red light which is from Vasari as well but it could be, it could be an Indian, Indian red from Windsor and Newton those sorts of um, ochre type reds so you've got the warm already mixing with the cool green and that gives you a really interesting base colour for a flesh tone, which you can pull out to cool warm up with. And then there may be right. some cadmium orange. I use a lot of cadmium orange. I think that's a real lifesaver for, for um, the parts of the face, for example, or the ears that are, have got that transparent light coming through them. Mm. Uh, then cadmium orange really is good to sort of bring that out. So you'll it, add that to the flesh correct, tone? Correct, yeah, yeah. So corners of noses, nostrils, tips of ears, or where the light might be shining through it. Mm -hmm. Cadmium orange comes in to give that sort of lit up, sort of, uh, you know, where things are passing, lights passing yes, through yes, areas. Yes, like in that, the cartilage in your ear yeah, or whatever. Yeah, or lights passing through areas that have a lot of fine blood vessels in them. Um, and so they, they light up, they glow, rather mm. than just sit as a flat, um, chalky colour. Yeah. And um, when you're mixing, say, the, a, a cooler colour, like, say, with that portrait, there was a part in the temple that is sort of almost like veins or whatever. Yeah. Um, would you go for a green? Is a green going, going to help you with that, or would you yeah, go blue? A, a green or a Prussian blue. I find Prussian blue really, really good because it's transparent. Oh. So um, what I'd like to do is at the stage where I want to perhaps suggest an underlying vein, I prefer to do a glaze. So I had to learn what a glaze was, and I had to read about what a glaze was, and it's taken me years to actually work out. Just through, you know, some good teachers on a DVD, and Cesar Santos in Miami mm. is a wonderful portrait painter, and he's very generous now, putting out DVDs even more extensive than David Kassan, talking about how he glazes with um, the transparent colours, and he'll scumble with the opaque colours. So learning about that, but if you want that area in the temple, for example, uh, pretty much 70% through the portrait, then I start to put that in just even with my finger with some linseed oil, diluting the, the um, uh, say, the Prussian blue, and you just rub it in, you get that sort of hue, of, and it makes it look like the blue's underneath. Oh, so, right. so you've glazed over with, so you've glazed over just a transparent, that's why you need it to be transparent, yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, okay. With it, just lightly, t a little bit on your brush, mm. a broad sort of round brush, and just pop it on, then just rub it a little bit in with your fingers. Mm. Um, 
um, and it just gives you that hint of that area. And it's already a cool area because it's a temple, so it's probably got a bit of raw umber in it to make it recede because it's more hollow in the temple. Mm. And then if you want the veins, instead of you're laboriously thinking you've got to paint the vein in. That's right. Because you get that linear quality, which is That's not. Right. Veins are not on the surface. You know, um, the, the temple's blue or green because the veins are under there. So, in fact, my, the lady that taught me in Paris when we were painting seashells in the night classes, I asked her about flesh and those sort of tones and said, you've just got to think about what makes the flesh that colour, you know, in the central cheek because of those blood vessels. That's that where you get that warmth and that... You might glaze in some quinacridine red or, um, uh, you know, a alizarin crimson and a dilute glaze in those areas towards the end of your paint. Yeah. Um, and would you, like, maybe have built that up underneath with other reds? Yeah. It'd yeah. still be a warm area. Yeah. But it's just that last touch. And is that, do you think that's through trial and error that you get to the feel for that? I or think do so. you read about it and sort of figure it out? It has to be trial and error there as well. As well. Mm. Um, if you're pretty happy with your painting and you haven't had much experience in glazing and scumbing, it takes a bit of courage to try it. Yeah, you feel like you're going to wreck it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the art is, you know, especially not being a professional artist, um, it's about fear, overcoming fear, and, 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 and feeling inadequate a lot of the time. And that's sort of why it's a bit addictive, because... Uh, if you can go to sleep at night and stop painting and you get this wonderful rest because you just think, oh, it's going so well, you know, and you wake up in the morning and realise that you weren't painting in the best light <laughs> and it's not so good and, yeah. you, and it really affects your day at work the next day because you want to get back to it and fix it. But I think it's that constant pull and push and pull between overcoming your fears and insecurities and I think that's art and I think it's not for everyone. But, um, Do you think you ultimately would be able to feel you got there? And um, I don't know. I don't feel like I've got there at the moment. I feel, I mean, incredibly, uh, it was incredible to make the finals of the Archibald. Really just gave me that little underlying confidence boost that I was on the right track. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, you know, not about winning the Archibald, I mean, just getting in there. People spend 20 years trying to get in, they haven't got in for the first time. So I was a little bit embarrassed to get in after the first time I tried. Well, that's and funny. Sta that and stayed struck yeah. about it as well. Were so you? Even going to an, a, a subject I didn't know or hadn't met before, approaching someone who said yes, and I got a bit of a shock when it was a yes, so then it was all on, I had to go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and even though it was Eileen, she was 102, she's a formidable figure. <laughs> and, and, and she's also an artist as well. Yeah. So, um, but isn't that funny that you would have self doubt given oh. the level of your painting? Because yeah. I mean, oh, it rises all the time. Yeah, isn't that yeah. funny? Because that painting, um, as your your painting of Susan Carlin this year, which is excellent as well, um, they're objectively clearly excellent paintings. But. Uh, it must be just hard to sort of knock out that self-doubt totally. It is. It hasn't, no, no signs of it going. We were talking about underpaintings earlier and you were saying that you usually start with an underpainting. Yeah, yeah. And that'll just be a, like a, a wash, maybe, just a tonal wash, which is maybe one of the few cases I might use turpentine or an odourless spirit. Yep. Um, and that might be in a bird sienna sort of um, war. I tend to like it to be a warm undertone. Oh. Okay. Uh, or I'll do a value study, they call it a dead painting, some people call it that, or an underpainting, which will be a range of greys. Um, Why would you choo choose a burnt sienna over a grey? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm still, I'm not sure whether there's a difference between the two. It's just different things I've seen that I'm yeah. trying, so. Yeah, and also, it's, I suppose you're getting, you're trying to get the tones right. Yeah. With that, yeah. as accurately as possible. Yeah. But I think they still change. I don't think you get them as accurate no. as you think you've got them. So yeah. whether it's necessary, I, I don't know. I think it's probably less necessary if you've done a detailed charcoal, finished charcoal drawing. Why do you think? Well, I think you can get that with that. You've got your reference point and have that next to you as well. And you could just start straight in with the oils if you oh, want. Oh, really? Yeah. So you would have your charcoal next to it? Yeah. If you do it that way, you probably don't need the undertone. The only reason to use the undertone is to have a warm undertone that might enhance your flesh tones mm. with a bit of with that coming through from the background and that could be a good thing mm. um, it's yeah well the other thing I, we were talking about earlier which was very interesting was your knowledge of anatomy yeah how that helps your work yes um what's a, what's some examples of that of how you feel that that is probably easier for you than other people? Yeah, I mean, I think was discovering, uh, using that knowledge of anatomy to work out the understanding of hard and soft edges. You know, particularly that sort of, if you're painting the nose on someone in, in 45 degree view, you know, the bridge of a nose will have the sharpest edge to it because you're looking at it from one side and it suddenly drops away on the other side down the side of a nose. Mm. So that's appropriate that that sudden angle change would have a sharper edge mm. than the chin or cheek in 45 degree view, which is a gentle fleshy area with a soft curve. It's going to have a soft edge. Yeah. So you understand that. You understand that. You understand why the... Um, uh, you know why the the muscles of the neck change and their hard and soft edges because what of what's happening with the the underlying muscles oh, of course, and yeah. why the hollows of a neck are often bluey you know greener because they're full of those veins that are there mm. why the temple is cooler it's receding yes but it's also got the veins sitting in that region which are not present say in the same area in the in, in the forehead mm -hmm. or the the prominence of a central yeah. cheek. So, and that's not necessarily going to come out in the photo. No, you won't get that in the photo because it'll all be hard. Yes. The edges will all be hard, and that's another trap of photographs. So, that's right, yeah. and with colour. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Colour's a big issue with photographs and shadow and light because mm. the camera always wants to bring things to a, um, uh, an average, um, and that's a problem as well. It's not how we see people. Our eyes don't work like that. You know, we adapt. If I look at your forehead, my eyes will adapt to the light of your forehead. But if I look at the, the shadow of your, you know, your hair, my eyes will want to, the pupils will change to, to bring out the exposure more. Mm. Um, and so that's a trick as well. And some people will take a photograph and expose it for darks and lights and have two photographs. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah that, that's not a bad It's quite a good way idea. to do it, yeah. You can also, if you sit with your laptop computer with the photograph on it, you can do the same thing on there as well. Mm. And oh, so, so you can just adjust if you're deciding yeah. you want to get into the shadows yeah. more or something. Yeah. Otherwise, um, you can get to the point, try and get to the point where I can just do it based on what I know the mm. ambient lighting was and what should happen from the anatomy that's there. Uh, and I did that very much with Susan Carlin's portrait. So oh, did you? I changed the lighting because the, at one stage, the, um, one of the poses I had for her, the head was, she was posing facing the opposite way. So, uh, but I wanted her head position on the body facing the other way. So I actually, actually cut the photograph up and flipped it round oh, and yeah. put it on, but the light was wrong. So I had to make up the lighting myself. 
As how, a, did, how was that? Was that a challenge? It was a bit challenging. It was, fear, <laughs> it was a bit of fear there to, to work out whether I could do it. But, but, but it came out pretty convincingly, yeah. I think, yeah. Well, and also I noticed that we're sitting here in your studio now and I'm looking at a photo, a large photo, and you're painting your daughter, but the flesh tones are nothing like the... In fact, colours in the whole picture are nothing like mm, uh, yeah. the photograph. So obviously you don't feel tied to that. Yeah, no, I think just the concept of trying not to be a slave to the photograph, I suppose, um, and... Because I think if you are, if you do come out exactly like the photograph, it won't really look convincing to. It will look like a photograph, which is kind of cold. And um, but if you try to engage the viewer in front of the portrait um, and to make them think about the person in front of them, mm. then it needs to be more convincing and not and not just photographic like. Um, yeah, something unreal about it. Almost. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know the portrait. We're talking about the portrait of Susan Carland um, in this year's Archibald. Uh, what I really like about that painting. It's interesting. You said you flipped it around because yeah. it's the negative space on the right-hand side that I think really works fantastically. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. something that you were you were excited about or, or interested in? Uh, I didn't. It didn't cross my mind for that one. Actually, <laughs> I probably fluked that one. But um, oh, uh, really? Yeah. So, but the 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 head position was the opposite way on a different body position. So I've cut and pasted it here. Oh, my yeah. God, you're so, kidding. Yeah. So, oh, so that it's was, a conglomeration of yeah, photos. Yeah, so that's why another thing of not being not being a slave to the photograph, actually, is if you like, I'm posing the, the subject after the oh. sitting. So, Gee, uh, it worked brilliantly. I'll just yeah. quickly describe this one yeah. as well. So she's sitting on... It's like an office chair, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. because it's got no arms or no, anything. Yeah. And she's sitting with one arm sort of draped back over it, which causes her shoulder to, yeah. to have an angle. With some tension, yeah. That's right, which, yeah. is, which causes that lovely shape. Yeah. So there's a profile and then the neck, then this shoulder coming yeah. out and, yeah. so, and the hand. So you've got this lovely um, combination of yeah. shapes. Yeah. Um, which the, adds a lot of interest to the that. movement, trying to get movement. Yeah, yeah even yeah. though it's very still. That's right, yeah. yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So um, the office chair didn't, doesn't exist. So um, she was actually sitting on a Scandinavian chair, which is um, we have here, um, and that in the photograph became very much a distraction. So um, ah, I just fabric so changed that made as well. a chair up. You know, the chair wasn't to be the feature; it was going to be just a support, and and it would read that she was sitting on something, but people wouldn't focus on that. The other interesting thing is with both of the portraits, both your Archibald portraits, is that beautiful un unfinished, if you like, or sort of uh, loose brush stroke of the clothing at the bottom yeah. of the of the portrait. What what was your thinking behind? Finishing it off in that way. I wonder whether some people might just think, looking at it, that you couldn't be bothered. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's to, once again, to, it's a portrait. It's a you know, I want people to stand in front of it and actually think about the person and, and what they're like. And um, I think realism can become at some point cold and bordering on photographic. And um, mm. um, it's like saying this is a painting. Yeah. That's right, and I think it's a painting. It's um, um, it's not about really the pattern on the jeans or the slacks that she's wearing. Um, um, so it's more about that, I think, mm, to sort of mm. like, well, I, I try to know what to leave out in the painting and what to leave in. Yeah. I think that's really important, and that's I still struggle with that. 
um, to make a painting work. And I think the more you leave out, the better, actually. You think so? Yeah. Even in the face? Yeah, to a degree, probably. Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen some really interesting works by um, a, a Dutch artist who actually almost destroys the eyes in the portraits. They're highly realistic, and then he almost impastos the eyes as if they've been are dissolving out. And that's really interesting, actually, to... to what to, builds them up, you yeah, mean? Yeah, and then just kind of impastos them out, like mm. they've been melted. Um, oh, right. So, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, definitely leaving out, having things receding and just... I mean, oftentimes, even the painting of my daughter, daughter here, I think I could probably do with a third of the ear actually looking like an ear and just having a suggestion in a deep shadow of an ear. And if you look at a lot of the master paintings from European artists and Velazquez and those people and Vermeer, if you actually study them, a lot of things are left out. Yeah, be you, what, because they dissolve into the shadow? Yeah, they dissolve into the shadow, and your brain makes, the, makes them up. Yeah. You know, as you look at it, you, you see an ear, but it's not there. The features of the ear are not there, but you, you see it. Yes. And they knew what to leave out and, you know, and what to put in. Yeah, there might be only just a suggestion where the light has yeah. caught the form yeah. sort of a thing. Yeah. yeah. Susan Carlin's work was uh, the first was second work I've done on wood panel. Uh, oh, so, I didn't realise that was on wood panel. Yeah. So and how, was it, what, how do you feel about painting on wood panel oh, as I love opposed it. to canvas? I've actually, I've actually almost gone over to it, I think. Um, I, painting here of my daughter and the one you saw of my one of my best friends is uh, on a um, beautiful um, I think it's a cedar wood panel um, and then I prepare that with uh, acrylic gesso which I put about I put about six or seven layers over and sand between every one mm. to get a nice smooth finish mm. and I love it it goes it works even better having that hard surface for cross hatching because the surface doesn't flex as you if you want fine cross hatches, then it stays firm when you you want to cross hatch on it with your oh, brush. Right. Whereas the the linen won't do that as it, much. It, not as much. It's a yeah. bit harder. But, so um, when you say cross hatch, you mean you're actually using fine lines? Yeah, fine parallel the... lines um, over a short distance that run along the form, mm. and then as it changes form, the angle of the cross hatch changes. So, mm. um, yeah. so will you do that in between patches of colour? Yeah, I'll still use some broad strokes with a brush in between um, in, in larger areas and then mix them up as well. Or I might use some broad strokes and scrape the crosshatch lines by taking paint off, turning a broad patch of paint into a crosshatch by scraping, scraping some paint off with a palette knife. Oh, OK. Um, so the underlayer will come yeah, through. Yeah. And what is the purpose of the crosshatching? Um, I think it allows you to, it, it allows some underlayers to show through if you want to, so some warms to show through a cold overlay. Um, and also it, it, I find it lends itself more to the impression of form and realism because you can change that, the line of the direction of the following the form. Um, right. Yeah. Which you might not have described enough with the brush stroke. Correct, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So you, you would use a combination of sort of brushes and palette, palette knife? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And various size brushes, do you find? Yeah, um, probably don't go more than about an eight sort of to a ten, um, but lots of ones and zeros. Right. Yeah. As yeah. you're getting to it, to, towards yeah, the end. Yeah, especially around areas of the face. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. And that's where I'm really getting my cross hatches in um, over the day before's dry paint layer or touch dry layer. Mm. And so... You need it to be fairly dry to be cross hatching on top of it, of course, because otherwise it just, it yeah, just blends it'll just in. Blend. So, yeah. yeah. 
So the crosshatch will be the colour of one of the sides, more or less, yeah. and blend into the other yeah. side, right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're doing the very fine details with a small brush, do you use a medium to thin down the paint? Uh, I do the first few layers are uh, straight paint. Um, sometimes I'll use a walnut alkyd medium in that, which uh, speeds the drying, um, doesn't yellow. Um, so it doesn't speed up so much that you can't blend no, that day. No, that's just right. So, so it's just that you're pretty much sure the next day it'll be touch dry to work on again. Yeah. Um, as I get towards um, the final layers, I find that the flow of the paint is a little bit easier to move across the surface, especially for a continuous sort of line of a crosshatch. If I've got a little bit of either the wal walnut alcott again um, or the... Um, uh, getting the paint a bit fatter still, so it's it's that fat over lean concept, mm. adding a bit more um, refined linseed oil. Mm. Uh, but if you add too much, then you get the beading on the surface. Yes, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, but what I'll usually do each day is oil in, so-called oil in with a sponge, like a makeup sponge or another form of sponge, just with a little bit of linseed oil to bring out the colours from the day before, because mm. they always flatten off a bit. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, how... You can, we were talking about earlier how you can like the work of certain artists yeah. that you would never paint like them. No, no exactly. Even though no, exactly. you just love them. You yeah. know, I feel like that about David Hockney. I said, yes. look at him, I think, oh, love those swimming pools. No, and, no, no. You, but, you couldn't paint, I and mean, you wouldn't want to paint that Well, one. I actually tried once, right. and then it just ended up being the way I used to paint, you yeah. know, and it ended up changing. Yeah, that's right. Because I think you're going to always end up painting the way you paint. Yeah, that's Don't true. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's also, in the way you paint, there'll always be an, a degree of derivation. I mean, I think we're all influenced by, I mean, increasingly these days, we're influenced by everything because yeah. it's, it's all, images are everywhere. Um, in fact, that's probably a danger, I think, of the social media and, and the internet and Instagram is that it does flood, art, flood artists with so many ideas that it actually can become paralysing for creativity and a lot of artists talk about the fact that they've stopped their Instagram accounts and I met one of the finalists of the Archibald, I forget his name, last year and he said, um, you know, the worst thing I ever did was have an Instagram account because I started to become so influenced by other external forces that weren't my own and it, my, it killed my creativity. And I recently met a, an author, a writer like that as well who wanted to interview me uh, for the College of Surgeons, and she said, I actually have no social media and internet because I, can't, I couldn't write with it. And I just need to be, you need the luxury of time on your own without external influence, and I think that's really important. So I try and have my phone out of the way, uh, or on, certainly on silent out of the way, and I find it very insulting almost to get a phone call while I'm in the midst <laughs> and on a, on a good run in a painting. You know, I, I'm actually almost annoyed about it that yeah. I've got to stop and, and, and answer the phone. I think it's a big problem. Oh, I totally yeah. agree. It's, uh, it yeah. takes you away from yeah. the present moment, yeah. Yeah. totally. It just yeah. pulls you out. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting what you said about social media because so, it's yeah. something I ask a lot of my guests yeah. about how they use social media. Yeah. I, I, I don't think you're on any social media no. platform. So you, don't feel, you feel like that's a, a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 How do you find, um, I think we talked about it earlier, about balancing the demands of a, of a practice yeah. and painting. Um, you, just, you, you just say, these are the days I'm painting and these are the days I'm working. Are you able to switch off? 
Yeah, I can switch off. I think painting's a great way of switching off and if you like escaping. Um, probably the best way I've ever discovered of actually just being in a completely different zone. What you do know, you need? What sort of conditions do you need for that? I need quiet. Um, I need family life and personal relations to be going well. I think it's if there's issues, then you can't paint. Um, mm. If you're worried about your kids or something like that, then you can't paint. Um, if you have financial concerns, you can't paint. Um, then, so I'm also fortunate that I have a job that you know I make my living from as a surgeon, and I don't have to do art to make a living. And you and you don't worry if it takes you like two weeks no, to do something, no. and then it you know. Yeah. And yeah. you could try new, yeah, new sort of techniques right, yeah. and that sort of thing. I still have that fear of failure in myself and that sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, that's true. So it gives you a bit of that freedom, I suppose, yeah. which is lucky to have, nice to have. So, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you how you feel that the um, Archibald experience has, has sort of uh, helped your painting or hindered your painting. or I Yeah, know. No, I think it's... I think it's helped. I think it, any, any little confidence boost is a good thing. Um, it's, I would have thought it's a huge confidence yeah, boost. Yeah, no, it is, a, it is a huge confidence boost. Um, I suppose it can, there is a risk that it can bring up more self-doubts, self depending on your, you know, can you do it again? Can you, you know, it's mm. a temptation to enter every year and, and um, you are, it's a very public display of art. And it is, it's a big yeah. deal in Sydney, uh, more so than Melbourne, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose you're removed from it a bit more here, yeah. aren't you? So you don't... I tend to be a pretty private person anyway and, and I guess shy, reserved. So I was a bit stage-struck when the Eileen Kramer work got in. Um, what, you know, I thought, what Pandora's box have I opened here? <laughs> well, but I think, was it 7.30 or Late Line did a story? They did, yeah. So, yeah, how yeah. did you find that attention? Yeah, look, interesting, I was a bit concerned how... It, you know, that I wasn't an artist, I wasn't a professional artist, and that I was a plastic surgeon, and I felt like I was stepping into a world that I didn't belong in. Mm. And so there's that sort of concern as well. Um, Do you feel less like that now? A little bit still, I suppose. I mean, I'm not a struggling artist trying to hatch out a living and, and you know, good on Yvette Coppersmith for, for winning, you know. That's an amazing thing for an artist to have and, and a boost for their career. That's fantastic. And, and the same oh, for yeah. last year's entry as well. So... Yeah. Um, that's yeah. really important. But um, uh, whereas for me, it was more just an affirmation of I can paint, you know, I can paint reasonable portrait. I can I can start to paint reasonably well. And traditionally, I think surgeons who take up painting do it when they retire. You know, and I didn't want to do that. No. Uh, I wanted to be able to retire and actually be, you know, flying on your way. Yeah, on my way, flying with art and and maybe yes. doing some commissions or selling a few paintings and. Yes, and that sort of so thing. you see that as your second career? You yeah, know? yeah, possibly, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Oh, well, I do. I see yeah. it as your second career <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, we'll see, we'll see. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, don't, I won't lose the love of what I do in plastic surgery. I don't, you know, if the day comes, I've got something else. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for this interview. I've, You're welcome. I've enjoyed... Um, coming to your beautiful home, which is just absolutely gorgeous. Everybody can see a bit of it on YouTube yeah, when okay. I've got yeah. it online. It's um, fine, you're welcome. And good luck. Thank you. 
thanks for listening to my conversation with Andrew Greensmith. What a fantastic painter. If you go to the website, you can um, find links to all the things and the people we talked about in the show. And also I'll be getting a short video of Andrew in his studio and his home up on YouTube in the next week or two. As you know, you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. The hardest part I find is starting a painting. So you can have everything ready, you're okay with your charcoal drawing if you do a charcoal first. You've got your, your panel or your um, canvas on the easel and you might have even put your done your sketch design or maybe not but actually getting it started because you're just afraid that it's not going to work. <laughs>